You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames. The music you have just heard is by our guest for this episode, composer Ben Lunn. Originally from Sunderland, Ben's work has been performed internationally by ensembles such as the Lithuanian National Symphony Orchestra, the Ligeti Quartet and soloists such as pianist Rolf Hind and violist Garth Knox. Now based in Scotland, Ben is a winner of not only one but two Scottish New Music Awards for his work with the Hebrides Ensemble and Drake Music Scotland. Most recently, he has been welcomed onto the RSNO Composers Hub. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no problem. So can you tell us a little bit about how you first sort of got into music and how this led to you starting to get into composing? Aye, so I first got into music initially because of involvements within brass bands, particularly in the Salvation Army and colliery bands. And so that just came back because one of the band members in my local Sally Army just came up to us with a corner and said, have a go at this. It didn't work very well. So I ended up getting onto the bigger instruments, the baritone, the euphonium and the trombone and so on. And as time progressed, I discovered I had a bit of a knack for making music of some sorts. And from there I had the audacity to apply for the music colleges where I was fortunate enough to get a place into the Welsh College of Music. And from there, I just explored and built initially from there, from that initial bit of enthusiasm and just slight arrogance, I I suppose. (laughs) Sure it wasn't arrogance. Um, When you were younger, did you find that it was more sketches you were doing or were they more fully formed pieces? It's hard to describe, really. When I was younger, it was a lot more curiosity about sort of learning what else was happening. So it was more a process of discovering what other music was out there more than necessarily thinking about my own work. I always sort of viewed others more favourably than my own. So it was following that kind of example and building up as much as I could. But sometimes it was an idea that came across or sometimes I had a slight sense of form, but I always looked at other composers more than anything else. So we know that your music is heavily influenced by spectralism. This is quite a complex and dense area of music uh, that a lot of people might be new to. 
I know that myself, I didn't come across this term until a couple of years ago. For someone who's never heard of spectralism, could you tell them what it is and how it sounds? So there are two basic thoughts on this. One devised by Horacio Radulescu, which I first came across, where this idea of creating a music that becomes almost like a physical object in and of itself used the term sound plasma. So you use very intense explorations of sound to create something that is almost like a living organism. Or the alternative voice was the French spectral school, which was led by figures like Gerard Griset and Tristan Murai, uh, Claude Vivier from Canada and so on. And this particular idiom focused more on the idea that timbre is harmony. And so from there is the exploration of overtones and just building that greater understanding of how the sound works to then use that as a core element of where you're working. What we find with both of these schools of thought is a music which at times sounds very familiar and raw, but at other times sounds completely out of this world. And it was ultimately that insane colour that drew me to it when I was younger. I think Earthy and Raw is a really good description of spectralism for those who aren't familiar with that style of music. Um, you mentioned Horatio Radulescu earlier in your description. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you came across this composer and what drove you to find out more about him? What drew me to Radulescu is I'd came across his viola work Das Ander, which is a truly magical piece for um, solo viola. And it starts off playing the seventh harmonic on the A string and just the sound is still today, still very, very magical. And so I had to explore, find more and just see what else I could learn about him. And so from there, that in curiosity, I had looked at various other different composers, either linked to him, like his teacher, Stefan Nicolescu or Tiberio Orla um, and Oral Stroyer. But I could never really quite feed that hunger to try and learn more about what he was doing and so when it came to the end of my bachelor's doing my dissertation it became quite obvious I had to really focus on him and I'm very thankful I got to spend a whole year really focusing on the ideas that Radulescu was looking at. We we enjoyed reading through your dissertation actually um there was loads of really interesting stuff in there um we did get a little lost when we started <laughs> when we started reading about the ring modulation is that the bit that we all got, we there got is, lost yeah, there. <laughs> just a few wee bits that are quite, I think, very difficult concepts. But at the same time, I don't think that in his music, it, it feels so natural, yeah. I have to say, when whenever when we were listening to, to, to his music, kind of researching for this. It, it, as complex as the ideas are, it, it just, it's, it's really hard to describe. It just feels really natural. <laughs> I think that's yeah. the best way I could describe it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, we're really fortunate to have been granted permission by Radulescu's wife to play some of his music. Would you like to introduce us for us, Ben? Yeah, so this is uh, L'Exil Interior, which was his cello sonata, which he wrote for Catherine, his wife. And this particular movement is called Ancestral Bells. And this is the closest it comes to sort of Romanian folk music within the whole of the sonata. And it's just particularly beautiful, I find.
Wow, that's an absolutely gorgeous piece of music. If you would like to listen to more of Radulescu's work, his wife Catherine Tunnell and pianist Ian Pace have recorded the complete cello works, uh, which are available to purchase online. So Radulescu is obviously a huge influence on you and your music. Could you tell us a little bit more about any other influences you may have? So there's a huge amount, and realistically I know I couldn't really exist without impact from all the other composers that I've been fascinated in various different forms. In Britain, one particular voice was Jonathan Harvey, who was essentially our best spectral voice that's ever existed realistically. And his ability to combine the ideas of spectralism alongside his spiritual view was truly incredible. And the music is not quite matched, I think, by anyone really on this island. Um, but beyond that, I've been was truly fascinated by the music within the Baltic, which is what led me to go enough to Lithuania to study my masters. And it was figures like Krutis Majulis, Julius Uzalonas, uh, Juste Janulita, Justina Repetskaita, and many other figures who, what I found in the region was this alternative reactions to various different idioms that happened in the 20th century. And it created something truly unique and original, which you can only find in that part of the world. So I found it really in intriguing and fascinating so I knew I had to go and study there and currently today I'm finding myself drawn more looking at how the composer's role fits within society so then figures like Hans Eisler, Alan Bush, um, Issan Yon or um, Gian Ezhu or um, Luigi Nono have been quite instrumental in that kind of understanding of how I can use my music as a way to connect to people not just in the sense of pandering but also just how it's sort of parallels that sort of social function that I'm really quite eager to try and tap into. Well we know that you studied at the Lithuanian Academy of Music and Theatre. Was it your interest in Baltic music that led you there or was there other other factors that took you to Lithuania? Ultimately it was the curiosity to get there. I knew it was sort of easier to learn about music within the Baltic by being there in person comparison to just learning purely online. And what led me to Vilnius over, say, Riga or Tallinn was simply at the time I had more friends within Vilnius and I was very lucky to be accepted into the Lithuanian Academy of Music and Theatre to then essentially satisfy this urge to explore music in the region. And how is your Lithuanian now? It's strange. I can read and listen wonderfully, but I speak like a baby <laughs> or speak like a small child. And so there were still still numerous examples when I sort of bumped in or sort of small talk with people and I would they would ask me the question and they could see I understood everything I'd then give a reply and then there'd just be this look of something's not right here <laughs> that must have been so hard I mean I can't even like keep up with classes in English to remind <laughs> in, like a foreign language that must have been so hard um let's listen to a little bit more of your music now so we're going to listen to a piece that you wrote in 2019 called Symphonies of Instruments. Um, it's a long work, about 17 minutes, so we'll listen to the, f the first movement. Um, is there anything it, it you could tell us about this, uh, this piece before we listen? Symphonies of Instruments was commissioned by Drake Music Scotland and Hebrides Ensemble to be composed for the Digital Orchestras alongside members of the Hebrides Ensemble. And within the piece, I wanted to create something that brought 
um, classical music technology right to the forefront and in direct comparison with the classical tradition as we know it. So this meant building a work which tried to explore symphonic forms as well as make direct references to various important parts of history. So for example, the cycle itself is a direct reference to Stravinsky's symphonies of wind instruments. And so from there, it was a matter of trying to find ways to explore and create the sort of symphonic characters we're very used to. So the first movement is this long exploratory kind of idea where we're then slowly introducing ourselves to various elements of the orchestra that we have in front of us. Then the second, I take a hocket and just build something really quite animated would be the best way of describing it. Then the third movement, I find I owe a lot to Hans Eisler's uh, Kleiner Symphony, where he has his third movement, which is just trumpet, trombone and violin and viola, just playing this lovely little three-part canon, which I knew I had to do in some form for this work. And then the finale is just a nice big finale to try and round everything off from there.
Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Ben. It's an absolutely beautiful piece of music. I've listened to this a few times now, and every time you hear it, there's just something new and exciting that catches the ear. For me, at least, on the first few listens, it wasn't immediately apparent that there was the use of accessible music technology. Could you tell us what instruments are being used and how you went about integrating the accessible music technology with the traditional acoustic instruments? So there's a huge collection. So first we have the digital harp, which was played by Rona Smith, and her instrument is controlled by three buttons, which are right by her elbow and then by her hand, which then allows her to trigger or loop or riff on certain materials that are within the computer in front of her. There is also Brain Fingers, which is a wonderful instrument played by Chris Paquin, which has a headband around his forehead, which then either measures the muscle movement or brain waves to then trigger information on the computer. From there, we also have iPads, which have wonderful uh, program called Thumb Jam, which allows you to then play around musically in, in a really fantastic, accessible manner. And then beyond that, we then have keyboards. We also have a instrument, which is like a keyboard, but the instrument itself is much more compact and the buttons are much more responsive so it allows you to play around in much more fun manner than you would necessarily imagine with a keyboard and so within this it was quite a difficult challenge at first but it was initially trying to explore the capabilities of the instrument but also try and find a way that fits quite natively to the instrument because these instruments are quite so new there isn't necessarily the pedagogy behind it which allows you to then build something specifically for them so for the um, brain fingers it was a matter of learning how to take advantage of the responses from Chris and build something that way and so what I found the best way to approach it was creating um, music which had huge sort of s static harmonic areas which then allowed you to then play around and explore which then meant that if there were issues with say maneuvering around figures and so on it allowed you to still remain consonant within the piece which then allowed the instruments and the instrumentalist to be able to sort of flourish regardless of what I had given them almost and beyond that I then thanks to help from the wonderful techies and other members of staff who help within Drake Music, I was then able to make sure that the instruments themselves were then tuned to the harmonic series as well. So what this then meant is all of the notes were then adapted to a specific harmonic spectrum, meaning the tritone was slightly flat, the fourth was slightly flat, the and various other different intervals weren't necessarily as equally tempered as we used to, which then meant they were quite simply playing spectrally while the live instruments that cello, viola, violin and clarinet had to play microtonally to just accommodate that and so it was quite an interesting shift dynamic that that produced. I was just wondering um, about this composition approach in terms of when you're in the writing phase because I would assume that you can't really rely on Sibelius or Finale or whatever to give a any sort of representation of what the piece is going to sound like. So you must have to rely quite heavily on your own ear and imagination, which I imagine must be quite difficult in the writing process. The harmonic language that I've been playing around with is something I've been playing around with for quite a few years. So it's quite intuitive to me at this point where I can reliably sort of understand what the sound is going to be, regardless of how accurate surveys gives it however you are right there was a sort of a lot of 
guesswork in places to sort of make the assumption that the sounds were going to be what I'd imagine they would be, which is always a problem that we composers have to face in some form or other. Um, but the big thing I sort of found across the board as well, because I had imagined them in a slightly more symphonic way, it then meant that I was be, I was able to use the instruments just so I wasn't necessarily have available to me because I wasn't using a traditional orchestra in this instance. And so this meant that I could think more about the ensemble function more than necessarily what the timbre was going to be because what ended up happening is we then created the timbres of the orchestra in person realistically and through process and workshop in the piece. So this then meant that what my initial ideas could have been ended up not necessarily being the case because of what we then produced together in the rehearsal room. You were conducting the premiere of that that piece as well. How how do you find it um, conducting your own pieces? I've I've only ever conducted one of my own pieces once out of necessity because nobody else would do it, and I was so nervous about the conducting that I actually had no idea what the piece sounded like at the end of it. I was just so busy watching the score and be like, right, seven eight bar nine eight, nine eight bar. Oh my goodness! And then it was over, and I was like, I hope that sounded all right. I have no idea. See, <laughs> so, yeah, well found that the way you listen as a conductor is very different to the way you listen as a composer and so when I did the performance it was much more people in making sure we were kept together as a group so it wasn't until I got the recording a few days later that I was able to actually sit down and listen to the piece and go oh you actually did quite a good job there not just beyond the well done everyone had their bars in the right place and everyone finished at the same time and all this other stuff so it is always quite funny that disconnect when you're conducting your own work and this is why I always prefer conducting other people's just because of the way you listen but yeah at least thankfully with the symphonies of instruments it was both tons of fun both to listen to and then to perform with the um, the orchestra as well uh, yeah so the piece was commissioned by drake music scotland and the hebrides ensemble um you've won not one but two scottish new music <laughs> awards for your work uh, with both these organizations can you tell us a little bit more about your role and involvement with these ensembles with this particular project, it, there was multiple layers that we had to address. One was to make sure that the event was accessible as possible, as I'd been sort of commissioned by Drake Music Scotland to then do a bit of research into how to improve accessibility for autistic and neurotypical people individually. So there was that level of research and action to make sure that came into place, which then meant that the Queen's Hall went through a huge amount of work to make sure that we were open and direct about our accessibility, which then meant going around working out all the widths of hallways, the number of steps, what smells are in the space, how bright it is, what other sensory input we have, and create this fantastic huge document which lays bare all of these circumstances in regards to accessibility and what an individual would have to accommodate before they can sit down and enjoy a concert. The alongside that, we'd also produced a video which sort of shows and demonstrates how you'd go about the process of getting from the bus into the hall, getting your ticket and then going and sitting down to the concert because one, it just then alleviates that potential stress, but also because the with both of these, there was the idea that if everything is as transparent as possible, anxiety and other sort of issues can't really impact as much if you know everything that's going to happen and alternatively we wanted to make sure this concert was as accessible across the board so then it meant that we could then challenge the listener to listen to the most intensive music that we could give them and as a parallel there was 
I use this sort of metaphor of the doing a Christmas concert. If you go to a Christmas concert but you've been stuck in traffic, you will walk into the console and someone splashed a puddle in you, someone spilt their drink against you, feel Christmassy. And so it's that same kind of scenario. If you can set up the environment to be in the right kind of place, your brain is can focus purely on enjoying the art you're about to listen to. Then what this also then meant was then not just making sure that we had a nice accessible venue and other elements like this. I also wanted to make sure that actually it was disabled people speaking to disabled people in this instance. So this ended up being the largest concert of disabled composers that has ever happened in history, I think, to the best of my knowledge. This meant in total we had nine different composers, including myself, who were all disabled in various different ways, but we were then able to just sort of listen and enjoy all the various different types of music that we as a community produce, but also try to avoid the sticky idea that there is a certain sound or other things like that. So I was quite proud to have works by Benjamin Teague, by Rowland Gleave, Siobhan Dyson, Lucy Hale, Claire Johnson, Joe Stollery, Ewan Mackay, and Rona Smith alongside myself. And it was just a really wonderful concert to put together. And it was thanks to the position I had with in Hebrides Ensemble as well as Straight Music Scotland, but also because both organisations, as well as Queen's Hall, were so incredibly supportive. If I didn't have that kind of support, it would have just been a very nice, fanciful dream. And I'm really quite thankful that I had both all of those organisations behind me to make this happen. Yeah, thank you very, very much for that. Um, it's wonderful to hear the amount of work that yourself and the organisations that you mentioned have put into making contemporary classical music more accessible for all audiences and composers. So to finish off, um, could you tell us a little bit more about what you've got coming up in 2021? Quite fortunate to have a, quite a few schemes line up at once. So firstly, I am on the uh, Making Music UK's Adopter Music Creator this year, which means I've been teamed up with Oogie Voices and the Aberdeenshire Saxophone Orchestra. And so I'm working out how to produce a piece for 40 saxes and choir at this point to be performed by them at some point within 2021. I've also been fortunate enough to be selected for the RSNO's Composer Hub this year, which has seen a chamber work as well as a piece for orchestra for them to perform and record in June, July time, which then, if I'm lucky, will then get programmed in the following season. But I'm alongside some very, very good composers. So at this point, I'm just very happy to be working with the orchestra and we'll see what the future holds on that one. And then... Finally, I've been quite fortunate to have been selected by Ensemble Proton Band for their Proton Work 11, which means I will be writing a chamber work for them and essentially a small residency with them for the entirety of 2021 for then a work to be performed in Switzerland in 2022. Perfect. Okay. So to play you out, we're going to hear a little snippet of your Kiek Pasalu. Can you give us a tiny little insight into this piece before we hear it? Kiek Pasaulu is a work I wrote for the Likety Quartet and it was the title comes from a wonderful Lithuanian poet called Lydia Shinkuka who currently lives and works in Australia and her very small poem quite simply says how many worlds invoke darkness to look upon the moon this is a really wonderful image I found and so I wanted to create this kind of energy and enthusiasm to then suddenly have this moment of light coming from darkness this kind of energy that comes with it but also just it's such a wonderful title as well so I'm just very glad I was able to use that in some form and connect that into the piece so yeah it's that focuses on simply how many worlds invoke darkness to look upon the moon